0: Hey there! I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean, a.k.a. Sean. And we're the guys. checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at Sandman, issues 9 through 12. The first half of a story called The Doll's House. And we start with a prologue issue whose connection to The Doll's House will become clear only in the fullness of time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, it's definitely a prologue for real. So, to recap a little bit of what's happened so far in Sandman, Dream, a.k.a. Morpheus, one of the Endless, the King of Dreams, the embodiment of the concept of imagination, escaped from confinement by a sorcerer where he had been held for 70 years, and he recovered his three artifacts of power... And while he was in Hell, searching for his helmet, he encountered a soul he had sent there 10,000 years ago. She asked to be set free, and he refused, saying he had not yet forgiven her. I remember that. That was just sort of a interesting little side moment in the issue where he goes to Hell. Yeah, Sandman's a bit of a tough room. Yeah. Well, I guess he did experience a tough room when Hell became a comedy club, and he had to tell them all about Hope. Yeah, that was really cool. Anyway, before we get into how this issue opens, should we talk about the cover for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. This issue is, as usual, written by Neil Gaiman. The art is by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III, and we're going to talk about the cover by Dave McKeon. Yeah, so this cover is a little bit different from the sort of frame covers that we're accustomed to. No shelves, that man. Yeah, yeah, no shelves, and it's not Limited on the top or bottom. On one side, we have Morpheus, aka Dream, and on the other side, we have an African woman, and there's sort of an African motif covering the whole thing. And within the frame, there's a small black bird. Yeah, they have a virtually identical patterning on their clothes here, and it's notable that he's his usual pale self, which we're not actually going to see in this issue. And she, by contrast, is dark-skinned but wearing pure white. Yeah, yeah, pure white with the, with the pattern on it that we mentioned before. So all of this will be important to the plot, which you can't say about every Sandman cover. <laughs> and we move on to page one, which also happens to be the title page, and it's Tales in the Sand. The page is bisected by an enormous spear. Yeah, and there are two more spears being carried by a pair of men who are approaching the scene. As one of them narrates, there are tales that are told many times. He goes on to explain that there are stories for children, there are men's stories and women's stories, there are tales that the whole tribe tells each other at festivals and feasts, there are low (laughs) tales, there are high tales, there are tales that are told and heard many many times, and then there's one tale that is only ever told once. So this young man, we learn, has just become a man in the eyes of his tribe. He has just been through his circumcision, and he's being taken out to the desert to be told by this older gentleman, the tale that is told only once. Yeah, and right away we're jumping into what seems to me a very heavily stereotyped portrayal of Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got literal spear-toting tribesmen. Yeah. You've got ritual genital modification. Yeah, well, they have that in lots of cultures. This one is just apparently doing it as a young adult. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a controversial thing. Most people wouldn't consider male circumcision to be mutilation. Right. But right. but nonetheless, genital mutilation is one of the stereotypes about Africa. Yeah, that's true. Which made it a little troubling for me. Fair enough, yeah. And I guess also just the, just the fact that they're walking on this sort of blank sheet of desert sand. Very true. Don't know if this is intended to be a modern scene or itself an ancient scene. That's an interesting point. Yeah, there's nothing really in this issue to prevent this from being hundreds of years ago. I think it's definitely exoticism at least. I do think that it's making an effort to show dreams and storytelling as a universal thing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The idea of, like, the universal cultural importance of storytelling really comes across well in this issue, but I still think that The exoticism of it still makes me really uncomfortable. Particularly, like, the first page, you know, having this extreme focus on the spear, Mm -hmm. giving the whole story a sort of foreboding quality that it never really lives up to. Like, there's really nothing scary going on. This is a bit of a spoiler, but there's really nothing scary going on in this issue. Except, like, unless you consider African tribesmen to be inherently scary. Hmm, i see so you think that it's playing them for menace a bit unfairly yeah that's that's fair well they reach a seemingly undistinguished piece of empty desert and the elder says this is the place yeah and he tells the youth to go looking for a special object he won't tell him what it is only that he'll know it when he finds it Right, so while the old man starts their fire and the sun sets, the young man searches, and eventually he returns with a piece of blue glass in the shape of a heart. Yeah, now this is a cool thing that happens with time over the course of this issue. The older man says that he has to begin the story before the sun sets, Mm -hmm. and as we will see, he finishes it just as the sun is coming up. So I, I I thought that was cool. Yeah, that's not bad. Also, um, as much as I might disagree with the ends that the art is moving towards, the art itself in this issue is very striking and quite well done. It's by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones, right? The same, yeah. the same artists who have been on the book for five five issues now, right? Yeah, yeah. Ever since uh, number six, yeah. Okay. So they're now seated around the fire, and the old man tells the young that the piece of glass was once part of a city. There are many others like it here, and it is forbidden to take them away from this place. This, he says, is the story of how the city was lost. And here we get a cool transition, as he tells the young man that once this place was fertile, and as he speaks from left to right across this panel, the space around him transforms. (laughs) Yeah. And as he's describing how fertile the land was, he says, If you simply closed your eyes and threw your spear, why, there would be something good to eat on the end of it. That sounds like a super dangerous way to hunt. (laughs) Which would result in eating your buddy as often as anything else. They didn't have uh, orange vests at this time. Not that they would have helped if you had your eyes closed. Well, yeah, (laughs) that's the real problem. (laughs) So, yeah, we see the city sprawled out around the river. It is a city built of glass. Yeah, and he also said that this is the place that the first people began, and the first people were of our tribe. This is a secret that the tribe never shares with anyone, but they know that it's true. And we never tell outsiders, for they would kill us if they knew. But it is the truth. And in that city there ruled a queen. She was called Nada. Nada was 16 years old, and we are given, as a straight fact, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah. Now, if your memory is sharp, you will remember Nada. You'll you'll recognize the name from Morpheus's trip to hell. Yes, from Sandman issue number three. Kind of a ways back now, but, but there it is. So Nada is a very good queen. She's a beautiful queen and a wise queen, but she is unmarried, and the old women of the city, urge her to marry, but when she says, essentially, that there's no man who can be her equal, they are forced to demur. Yeah, until a stranger comes to town, and we are told that flames danced in the blackness of his robe, which cues us in pretty well that this is dream. Yeah, and his eyes were stars in deep pools of dark water. So Morpheus walks up to the base of Nada's tower, and he looks up, and we see him there as more than a silhouette for the first time in this issue. And as we saw back in issue number three, in Nada's eyes, he appears as a black man. Right. The same black man that we saw before. Yeah, Um, he still has the messy hair that we know characterizes Dream. So he looks up to her window, she looks down, and as a result is unable to sleep that entire night. In the morning, she orders the stranger brought to her, but he cannot be found anywhere in the city. And there's a nice facial expression at the bottom of this page as the young man reacts enthralled to that piece of the story. Oh, yeah. So the queen sends all her men after the stranger, but they are unable to find him. And Nada wept inside, for she knew that she had found her love and lost him. So she decides to go looking herself, and she walks into the forest to talk to the king of the birds. Yeah, and this bird king has an awesome little bird crown on his head. <laughs> this is like a nine-foot-tall white ostrich that is looking down on her and talking. And he's got a crown, and it's rat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's completely great. And I also like the last panel of this page, where... We see the old man's hands as he tells the story. Mm -hmm. Is the implication here that he's doing some kind of shadow puppetry, do you think? No, I I think he's doing a gesture here to show just how tiny the tiny white weaver bird is. (laughs) Oh, okay. Is that what it is? The king of the birds summons every bird in the world and talks to them. But none of them had seen the stranger until the last. A white weaver bird so tiny they had overlooked it. I thought it would be cool if it was shadow puppets. Shadow puppets are cool. Well, they're sitting on opposite sides of the fire. You'd have to sit behind them see that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Unless there was like a hill back there. Maybe he's projected on there. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. This is the drive-in. <laughs> I went to a drive-in this week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did you have a good time? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. It was a double feature. I couldn't stay awake through both movies. So. Was... What did you see? I, I, Despicable Me 3 and Wonder Woman. Oh, okay. But, I, <laughs> but, yeah, we had to leave, like, 20 minutes into Wonder Woman. Oh. <laughs> and Despicable Me 3 is a pretty crap movie. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that on that occasion, you were not exploring the dark side of DC. <laughs> the Bird King asks the White Weaver Bird, he has seen this man, and... The Weaver Bird nods and says that she has seen the man one night beneath the moon. He smiled at her and gave her grain to eat, and the Bird King recognizes this somewhat oddly. Apparently, there's only one creature in the whole cosmos that would feed a little bird, as one yeah, fuck that of, little bird, <laughs> as something neither man nor god, and therefore not for Nada to love. Yeah, I, I think it was the the fact that he vanished. Uh, Okay, yeah, I guess he... More than the feeding the bird. He just vanished really good. He didn't just, like, walk away. Wait, you know who else feeds birds? He wasn't just, like, holding up a drawing of a fence in front of himself. (laughs) I was gonna say, you know who else feeds birds? Mary Poppins. And she's not exactly human either. No, that's true. She is neither man nor God. (laughs) So the king of birds sends Nada away telling her to go find a man, a living man, to love. Find a breathing man made of blood and bone and flesh and skin. This other can never be yours. Yeah, so she is sad, but the little tiny weaver bird has good news for her. Or at least, you know, another, another lead she can pursue. It turns out there's a tree that grows on the mountains of the sun that grows berries of flame. And if you eat one of these berries it will take you to the side of your true love. When he says the mountains of the sun, do you do you think that he means mountains like on the surface of the sun? Or do you think that he just means like mountains where it's really sunny? Oh, I think we're absolutely talking about mountains that are on the sun, which is, you know, some place that a small weaver bird can fly to. I see. And there's a pretty cool drawing here of the mountains of the sun. Oh yeah, and the berries of flame on the tree actually look really cool. Yeah, and the mountains of the sun are sort of boiling orange. It's all very cool. And by this time, the sun has set on the fire where the old man is telling the story, and the little bird said, I will fetch it for you. Yeah, so a queen waits for an entire day as the weaver bird flies so far away that it disappears from sight. Actually, we're told it flies so high, so I guess that supports your theory that it flew all the way to the sun. At the end of the day, she sees a tiny speck in the sky, and the little weaver bird comes back. But it has been burnt a deep brown by the heat of the sun. Yeah, and that's why weaver birds are not white. There's a kind of interesting, like, fable quality to this, where it's... Uh, maybe fable's the wrong word, because it's, it's it's not imparting a moral, but it's like, it's like explaining, you know, why weaver birds are the color they are. Yeah, it's partially creation myth. It explains elements of the world, and a moment later he explains an element of their culture, as Queen Nada orders that no one in her land will ever harm the bird or his kind again, and the old man adds that it is forbidden in their tribe to eat or kill weaver birds. All right, so a queen eats the berry after returning to her own quarters and she goes into what seems to be the Dreaming. She wakes up in a sort of shadow world and finds her spirit wandering, and then she encounters two brothers fighting over who has given the better sacrifice. Right, so this is Cain and Abel, obviously. Anyone with passing familiarity with the Bible will recognize that story. And they're also drawn as Cain and Abel, Right, to us, they're immediately recognizable as the Cain and Abel that we met in issue number two. Yeah, and who have shown up a couple of times since then. Cain kills Abel, and Nada goes over to Abel and asks him where they are. This is the dream world, lady, he told her. This is the realm of sleep and dream, ruled by Kaikul, the lord of dreams. That house is his house. It's also worth noting that... When we did meet Cain and Abel for the first time in issue number two? Yeah. Reference was made to storytelling as well there, because Abel refers to himself as being from the first story. That's right. Yeah, and this will tie in as well with a later story that we're going to get about Cain and Abel and how they came to exist in the Dreaming. Many, many issues down the road. So, Nada goes to the house. And the guardians are able to sense the flaming berry inside her body and allow her to enter. Here we see the three guardians of Morpheus' house. I just sort of see some horses winged and not on the gate. Okay, now I'm going to have to look up who the three beasts are, because we see these guys a number of times. But here they look sort of like they're just carvings on the gate, but there's definitely a horse creature and a uh, a griffin-type creature. Hmm. So, when she approaches the throne, she doesn't recognize Morpheus, because he is wearing his helm. She tells him that she comes seeking a stranger who she's fallen in love with. Flames dance in the blackness of his robe, and his eyes are stars in pools of deep water. He came to my tower one night and looked up at me, but he said nothing. Yeah, and at this, he removes his helmet with a smile. He's the Kaikul that we saw before. She recognizes the stranger. And her heart sank within her, for she had confessed her love to one of the Endless, who are not gods, and will never die like gods. And in the twin stars of his eyes, she saw that he loved her too. She immediately coughs up the berry, leaves the dream world, and returns to her own bedroom. But Sandman follows her, saying, Why did you hunt me? Why do you flee me? I hunted you because I love you more than mortal man has ever been loved by woman and I fled you, because it is not given to mortals to love the endless. She says it can only lead to disaster, but Morpheus is intrigued because no one has ever loved him enough to seek him out, nor has he ever met a woman worthy to be his. He decides he wants to marry her and make her queen of the dream world, but she knows this would be the destruction of them both because, she says, love is not of the dreaming. Love belongs to desire, and desire is always cruel. We'll find out more about that next issue. So, Nada transforms herself into a gazelle. She's always been able to do that. And (laughs) runs away. Yeah, that, uh... (laughs) That (laughs) left me a little bit confused. Well, they said she was a good queen and a wise queen. Maybe we infer there that she knows some sorcery. Or maybe it's just that kind of story. Well, anyway, he turns himself into a hunter. And chases her down and slays the gazelle but she turns back into her own form and she climbs up a high mountain. And we're getting a little bit of Karanzin here with the way that they're both changing forms to counter each other. Yeah, this scene of him killing the gazelle also reminded me of Morpheus taking on the form of a hunter in his duel with Karanzin back in issue number three. That was a good issue. We should just talk about that one some more. (laughs) Maybe we should just have a website where we post Uh, Sam Keith drawings of demons. (laughs) No, it's like it'll be like one of those sites that'll be like, is Sandman issue 3 awesome? And it always says yes. (laughs) So at this point, she's hiding up on the mountain, and Nada decides that maybe she will not be wanted as a bride if she gets rid of her maidenhead, so she does so with a sharp rock. Mm. Yeah, and... Where the blood-fell red flowers grew. But it doesn't really help anything, because Kaikul doesn't care. Right. I am no mortal man, and I love you as no mortal man could love. What matters your body to me? And we're told, he touched her sex with his hand, and at his touch she was healed, and the pain left her, and the wound was healed, though her maidenhead was not restored. And he pulls her into the folds of his robe, and they make love. And every living thing that could dream dreamed of love. That's a good line. Yeah. So, in the morning, Nada realizes that this should not have happened. Moments before this attitude is confirmed by a giant fireball that comes out of the sky and levels the City of Glass. Yeah, the sun's a real fucker. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that one worked on me. Nada knows that worse will come if they stay together, and so she presses Morpheus to her one more time and throws herself from the mountaintop to her death. Yeah, and then we get two panels of silence here as the old man telling the story just lets the gravity of it sink in. Nada's spirit awakens on the borders of the land of death. Once again, Morpheus is standing beside her. Once more I will offer my love to you, once more, and that is all. If you refuse me a third time, I will condemn your soul to eternal pain. So, this is a little bit confusing. What he's saying here is that if she refuses him a third time, eternal pain, but this will be the second time he asks. Even though he says right here, this is the last time I'm asking you, he's going to ask one more time. Well, yeah, it's also just confusing because, like, what power does Dream have over the realm of death? What power does Dream have to consign people to hell? You know? This stuff should not be falling under his purview. Well, those are good questions. We basically have to take on faith that he can consign people to hell. Well, we don't have to take it on faith. We see her there. And we aforementioned issue number three. Is is issue number three awesome? It was pretty awesome. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we know that it works. We don't know exactly why it works, although he's so old and powerful that it's possible that, I don't know, hell owes him something or the like. Now, as for the Realm of Death, which, as we know from issue number eight, when we met Morpheus's sister Death, is the realm of another of the Endless, therefore definitely outside of his purview. The Sunless Lands. Yeah, we are going to find out that he has sort of an ability... take people from that realm, and I'm not going to disclose exactly how it works yet. Oh, so that's coming. Yeah. Okay. And I see this makes sense now as I as I look at it, because on the next page, Nada does not actually refuse Dream. She just asks him, how can I be your queen? For my people are no more because of what I did, and my city is a waste. If I were to stay with you, still darker things would happen. Mortals do not marry the endless, my love. And she walks away, Yeah, she walks away, he catches up with her, and before he gets a chance to ask again, she says, Do not ask me again to be your bride, for if you ask me, I must refuse you again, and if I do that, you will condemn me to eternal suffering. So leave me, lord. But the dream lord is a proud one. He asks her once more to be his bride. The old man sits in silence for a moment, and the young asks him, What happened then? Yeah, and there's daylight behind them now, as we see the conversation between the old man and the young. The old man says, that is the story. That is all there is. But that's not a real story. It doesn't end properly. Welcome to Neil Gaiman, kid. (laughs) He's got kind of a point. But so, after sort of a long pause, the old man admits... She said no, what else could she say? So the story is over, and it's time to leave, but you can't take a piece of the glass city with you, that's forbidden. So the old man has the young, just toss it haphazardly to be found by the next generation. You have lost your foreskin, and you have heard the tale. That makes you truly a man. Let us go. The tale is over, and my bones grow cold as they walk away, there's one more bit of narration telling us a little bit more about this story. There is another version of the tale. That is the tale the women each tell each other in their private language that the men children are not taught, and that the old men are too wise to learn. And in that version of the tale, perhaps things happen differently. But then, that is a woman's tale, and it is never told to men. So, now wait just a minute. A woman could be reading this comic book. Well, that's what I was going to say! Is Neil Gaiman implying that all of his readers are dudes? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because Neil Gaiman has said that he classifies the stories he writes, he classifies his Sandman stories, into male and female stories. Some of the stories are of more masculine perspective and some are vice versa. A Game of You, he is notably cited, is one of the most prominent female stories, and he thinks that's maybe why it's not so popular with his readers. Is that one we've read already? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was going to say, I don't know what that is. Should I? (laughs) So he's directly raising the idea here that there are male and female versions of stories. And another sort of recurring theme of the series crops up here, too. As we learn that stories are told to many different groups of people and by many different groups of people. There are children's tales. There are old men's tales. There are men's tales and women's tales. Perspective is really important and hero and villain are largely a matter of perspective. Gaiman has said that from another perspective, Dream could be considered the villain of the Sandman series. Well, he's pretty clearly not the villain of 24 hours. (laughs) No, I suppose not. Although, as we talked about in that story, he's not really bothered by terrible, terrible things happening to mortals, just by an affront to his office and his power. Right, he's more interested in maintaining the natural order of things. So his disinterest in typical concepts of morality and ethics make him, perhaps, an anti-hero. Yeah. Well, we're starting to get behind. We better move on to Sandman Issue 10, Doll's House Part 1. This story is, in fact, entitled The Doll's House. Same credits as the last issue. Cover is Dave McKeon again. And we have a woman wearing cross earrings in the dark. Uh, Again, there are no shelves. This image is bordered on the top and the bottom instead of on the sides. Yeah, by what looks like bleeding flesh with flies on it. Gross. Yeah, these covers have taken on a a distinct style in this story arc that's very different from how they looked in all the issues collected into the first trade. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose we should also point out that in the trade, the cover extends to a full double page. So we open on the Realm of Desire. This is the Threshold, an unbelievably vast statue of desire built out of flesh. Yeah, and as the statue is described for us, we get excellent descriptions of the scale. We're told it contains two eardrums, larger than a dozen marble ballrooms. And yet it has only one inhabitant, Desire itself, who lives, of course, in the heart. Yeah, and pretty much all of page three is just an establishing shot of Desire's 80s ass apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the inside of the heart actually looks like this sort of giant concert space. There's An image across a bunch of TV screens and some big speakers and just a huge empty room where Desire is standing alone leaning against one wall. And from here she enters her gallery. Desire we should describe for a moment. Desire is pale and black-haired like Morpheus, androgynous, and is wearing a pretty cool blue suit. Yeah, and her hair is much, is much neater. There was apparently some disagreement between Gaiman and Mike Dringenberg as to where exactly between the sexes Desire is. Okay, Dringenberg thought that Desire should be omnisexual, whereas Gaiman felt that Desire was actually sexless. Desire, but not fulfillment. Oh, interesting. So Desire walks into its gallery, and there we see the symbols of the Endless, three that we've already met. Death's Ankh, Destiny's Book, and Dream's Helm. She lays a kiss on the helm, and then moves on to a small placard that has a hooked ring. Yeah, and Desire was sort of blocking the shot. We now see four more of the symbols. There is an empty space where one should be, Desire's own smile, the ring with the hook, and a swirl of wild colors. Are you going to tell me what those correspond to? Well, some of them we haven't met yet. Yes, that's... That's very true, but we're about to find out who the ring belongs to. Attend, sweet sibling. I stand in my gallery and I hold your sigil. Will you talk to me? And with that, Desire's sister Despair appears. Yeah, Despair appears to be a chubby-faced being with fangs who wears the hooked ring and occasionally cuts herself with it. They talk about several things here, including a prodigal brother who has long been missing, and a dream vortex, the first for a long time. Despair warns Desire not to mess with the Elder Three. They don't play our little games. I thought that wasn't a very good voice. It's a great voice. I just don't know if it's good for this character. It won't work. It can't work. It didn't work last time. No, it didn't. Nada was a mistake. But Desire reveals that there is a dream vortex, and it's a woman. And they agree, for now, just to wait. So this scene closes on Desire throwing her arms up in the air, mimicking the pose that her statue is in. And it transitions from one to the next, while the narration says, Is there something you crave? Something sexual? Something precious? Someone special, anything, then you have felt it. It's there, in the longing, in the lust, the breath of desire, the caress of the threshold. And then the narration changes tone drastically. Mom woke me up when we were coming in for a landing. My legs were cramped and I felt generally shitty. Yeah, so this is Rose narrating. It's a young woman named Rose Walker, and she's on a plane coming in for a landing in England, along with her mother, Miranda. Yeah, and you can already tell that Rose is going to be an important character. In part because of, I think, what a unique voice Neil Gaiman gives her, but also because he's giving her narration boxes, (laughs) which requires a little bit less intuition. That, and she's talking about what's historically proven a pretty important subject to this comic book, the dream that she's just had. She dreamed that she and her mother and her missing brother Jed were all living in a big house with a big fat British guy. Yeah, and that big, fat British guy, if it is who I think it is, is someone who will be appearing next issue. So they come to a landing in England, where, it turns out, Miranda was born, although she hasn't been here since she was very small. Do you recognize who she is yet, listeners? They are greeted by a stiff solicitor, Mr. Holdaway. Miranda is impressed. Rose isn't. Yeah, and they want to know what they're doing there, but he... Refuses to explain, saying instead that he will lead them to his client, and everything will be made clear. Right, and it turns out that their trip to England has been paid for by his client for mysterious reasons. Yeah, and he possesses a classic English car, which takes up two-thirds of the next page. <laughs> <laughs> the labor of law. Yeah, and I I think that the big-ass panel of the nice-looking car is maybe the comic's apology to us for the fact that this page is mostly boring exposition. They drive about 20 minutes through the countryside to the home of their benefactor. Yeah, and they they found out by mail that they'd been given a free trip to England, which, you know, they didn't know the purpose of it, but... They're not going to turn it down either. Right. Free holidays in England don't grow on trees. As they drive, Rose falls asleep once again, and this is cool, as she nods off, the page turns sideways and she slips into the world of dreams. Yeah, and for the next few pages, everything that happens in the dreaming will be shown to us in sideways pages. We find Abel getting a visit from Morpheus's librarian, Lucian, who is taking a census of all the dreams. I wonder if he's going to try to test anybody. (laughs) Yeah, that's Lucian. We've met him before, although it took me a few pages to remember. Yeah, well, he's drawn with much more exaggerated hair, I feel like. And as he completes his census, he finds that only four big ones are unaccounted for. I should say we have a massive, like, pin-up style spread of dream in his palace, where he's been rebuilding the palace. Yeah, and then we get a close-up on his face with his eye gleaming as he requests the news of the census. Now this is pretty cool, too. The palace has some interesting design features, including huge statues of naked women that are holding up church arches, a stained glass window with an ankh at the top, and an open sky. Yeah, it's really cool looking. There are 11,062 dreams accounted for in the Dreaming, which means four are missing. Four big ones. Four of the major arcana. Brute and Glob. They vanished decades ago. I never trusted them, my lord. The Corinthian. That could well be bad news. The Corinthian is not the most social of nightmares. Yeah, and we see here that the Corinthian has basically mouths for eyes... Dang, I kind of thought they sat on that one for a good while. No, it's right there in the first panel. And finally, a place called Fiddler's Green. Yeah, and I was like, that can't be a person. Fiddler's Green is a place. <laughs> Which maybe explains why Dream says that he's vavaser of his own realm. Yeah. Fiddler's Green is like the afterlife for sailors, right? I thought it was specifically a bardic place, like a musician place, but I could be wrong about that. A hmm. uh, little background. Groot and Glob are supporting characters first appearing in Sandman Volume 1, Number 1, created by Jack Kirby in 1974. That, incidentally, is also the first appearance of Jed Walker, although he was called Jed Paulson at the time. In that series, a Professor Garrett Sanford built a machine to enter the dream dimension and became the superhuman guardian of that place. Is that Sandman Volume 1? Yeah, this is Sandman Volume 2. Well, what about the Wesley Dodds? I guess he appeared in, like, Mystery Theater or something. Oh, he never had his own I guess I he title, never never his own, own title. But... Interesting. So the Jack Kirby one was Volume 1. Yeah. Interesting. Go on. The Corinthian and Fiddler's Green have their first appearance in this issue, and according to Gaiman, the Corinthian is named for an old-fashioned term for a right or a ne'er-do-well. I see. Well, he certainly doesn't do well. He's an example of intemperate behavior in this series as well. Yeah. He's not a nice guy. Lucian goes on to tell Dream that there are rumors of a dream vortex. And this is pretty funny. Dream confirms that the vortex exists. He says it's a she, and she's watching us from the corner of the room. Right, because we're kind of in Rose's dream right now. Right. As they turn to look right into the camera, Rose takes up the narration. It was me. They were looking at me. That was when I realized that I was dreaming. And then suddenly there's a block of text which is right side up again as Rose's mother wakes her. Yep, that's a really cool effect. So they've reached the house of their benefactor. It's a nursing home, and they are led up to their benefactor's room. And as they're going, Rose asks the solicitor, What's an annulet? Which is funny because that was exactly my question when I saw the word on the previous page. It's another word they had used for the dream vortex. And Holdaway explains, It's a kind of ring, I believe. Old word. An unusual thing to want to know. Yeah, and he condescendingly calls her girly. And she gives him a piece of her mind for it. And please don't call me girly. I'm 21 and I wouldn't have liked it when I was 10. Booyah! (laughs) Shut down! (laughs) Holdaway is having a bad time. (laughs) At the end of the day, he still has a really nice car. Oh yeah, yeah. But maybe that's his employer's car. Maybe he only gets to drive it at work. Well, shit! (laughs) (laughs) So they go into the room of their benefactor, and it's Unity Kincaid! Right. Who we haven't seen since Issue 1. Is that right? I don't think so. She was one of the people who had sleepy sickness, and she fell asleep for 70 years during which, we found out, she apparently conceived a child by rape. Yeah, the child was given up for adoption, she slept through the whole thing, and then woke up saying, I dreamt I had a baby. It was very affecting there, and it has quite an effect on Miranda here too. She takes it fairly badly to learn that she is that child from issue number one. Yeah, but Readers could be forgiven for not necessarily remembering Unity Kincaid by name. We had to learn a lot of names in that first issue, and one of them was Ruthven. <laughs> so, and, and Unity's hair has changed. Here, she's all gray. She was strikingly red-haired before. So Miranda doesn't take it well, but Rose hardly needs any explanation before she says she already knows that it's true. Also, should point out that. One of the things in Unity's room is a literal dollhouse. That's right, which attracts Rose's interest. And Unity explains that it is the house she grew up in, and they they used to have a, a miniature of the house in the house, but that house has long since been sold, and this is all she has left of it. So Rose goes out in the halls, and starting from here, she appears to have rainbow streaks in her hair. Yeah, that was actually, that's actually been present since the beginning. It was just kind of hard to spot. But yeah, she has a blue stripe and a red stripe in her otherwise blonde hair. There's a cool panel here of her alone in the hallway, stretching all the way across the page, giving a nice sense of her alone. Oh, yeah. But she hears a whisper and sticks her head into a dark room, and there she sees the Hecate. Yeah, just out of nowhere. And as we see, once again the Hecate is composed of a maiden, a mother, and a crone, we are sort of reminded of Unity, Rose, and Miranda. No kidding. So, this could be a bit of a confusing page, but I believe you read straight down and then go over to the right-hand side. Yeah, it's... it's kind of cool. All of Rose's dialogue on this entire page issues from a single panel of her. Yeah with even her speech bubbles that are part of later panels are pointing back towards the one panel of her face. And she asks them their names, but the maiden says she should be satisfied with the trio she has. You wouldn't want to meet us as the kindly ones. And the mother tells her, daughter, beware dreams and houses. She asks, over the course of the scene, a bunch of questions, but only three that they answer. Who are you? Protect me from what? From life, the mother answers. And how many of you are there? To which the crone replies that that was the wrong question. Had you asked the right question, I could have warned you against the Corinthian. Told you of Jed and of Morpheus. Hee! Now you're going to have to find it all out on your own. And they fade away, leaving Rose in what turns out to be room closet. This is actually really cool, too, is that the light fades as the crone is speaking, leaving nothing but eyes visible in the room until we have a space of pure blackness at the bottom of this page. And then Rose clicks on the light as we turn the page to see the supply closet. And at this point her mother calls her name, causing her to shriek with surprise. So Rose goes on back and talks to Unity and her mother for a little while longer. We learn that Unity had Miranda well in a coma, that she awoke many years later and eventually was able to press hold away into admitting the child existed. At first, her servants and solicitors denied it. And she hired private detectives to find the kid, and eventually they did. Yeah, and as she's relating all this, that appears to be Morpheus watching from the window of the dollhouse? I think so. I thought it might be Desire because of the smile, but the hair's too wild. Yeah, but we definitely see a shadowy figure watching from the tiny window of the dollhouse. So Unity gives Rose a gift of a ring, and Rose freaks out because this recalls the amulet from her dream. Annulet is an a word for a ring. What's happening to me, Mom? The woman in the hall closet, she knew about Jed. She said I should beware of the Corinthian. What's the Corinthian? And in answer to her question, we go to... The Love Inn Motel, Amarillo, Texas. So we see from someone's point of view that this person has a teenage boy, apparently a prostitute, tied up in the bathtub. Yeah, the entire scene is from the perpetrator's point of view, but we can see that they have a bottle, a pair of sunglasses, spurs on their boots, and a big old knife. Yeah, and the scene is originally in darkness until the point-of-view character takes the sunglasses off, and then we see them in his hand. Our point-of-view character brandishes a knife, and interestingly, in one panel, the knife seems to point from his hand in one panel to the boy's eyes in a different panel. And the character says, "Davy, I said we were only going to play, didn't I? Now, Davy, it's playtime. Gross! Yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. What a fucker. Well, this is not arc like I suppose. <laughs> I don't like that guy. Okay, Sandman number 11. Moving in. Sean, who wrote this issue? Why, well, Neil Gaiman wrote this issue, and you know who drawed it? It was <laughs> Mike Trinkenberg and Malcolm Jones third. I see. Is there a cover to this issue? Yes, it was by Dave McKeon, and it shows sort of a naked man with a bunch of hooks sticking into his flesh. Yeah, uh, and he's kissing a hand and again there are no shelves this image is framed from above and below above there's kind of a butterfly and below there's like a table surface with a pair of scissors on it yeah and maybe a news clipping yeah maybe so we open on a big really cool looking house and do we find out what city this is it's florida i'm not sure we need to know anything more than that that's the name of a state <laughs> So Rose is greeted by her new landlord, Hal Carter. Rose, we find out, is from New Jersey, but this is a house in Florida where she's going to be staying as she looks for her brother, Jed. She's Do you think that English people think there's only one city in Florida? I seem to remember that The Office, the British version of The Office, did the same thing. It has parts that take place in Florida, and it just, it's just Florida. It doesn't, there's no city, it's just Florida. I think, in a sense, when you're a traveler, every place seems like it's just the city, if not just the airport. Okay, fair enough, but it doesn't really matter, except that she's in driving range of Georgia, as we will soon find out. Oh, right. So Hal leads Rose to her room on the second floor, and they meet some of the other residents of the house. Yeah, uh, creepy Ken doll and Barbie doll, shiny happy people. And there are also allusions to Miss Dolly. Well, they ask Hal if he's going to be Dolly this evening, because Ken's mother is coming over, and she's very straight, so she wouldn't like it. Yeah. And then they meet the spider women. Right. Two older women wearing veils who have the largest privately held collection of stuffed spiders. Everybody's gotta have a hobby. (laughs) Yeah, and we can tell virtually nothing about them. They give their names as Zelda and Chantal, but they're literally wearing veils, so we can't really make out anything about them. Yeah, anyway, it's a big old house full of weirdos. And we're told that there's one more weirdo, Gilbert, who lives on the top floor. He's not around right now. They come into the room that will be Rose's apartment, as she explains that she's here to look for her brother, Jed, who's about 12. And there's sort of one more guest, as we see a large raven alight on her windowsill. Yep. Yeah, and her room here looks really cool. Just the sort of naturalistic way that the characters are drawn as they carry on conversation with each other. Just really nice art. I want to point out something here as well. In the background of this page we can see the bathroom of Rose's apartment, which has a checkered floor just like the supply closet she wandered into at Unity's place. Do you think it also has a sign that says, please wash your hands exclamation point? Could be. Well, should. Well, that's kind of aggressive for a person that you're giving a new apartment to, as opposed to a, you know, an employee who works there. Well, if they're gonna have meals together, you know, you want to make sure everyone's practicing proper hygiene. If they do it, yeah, if they do it B&B style. Right, like family style. Yeah. So, we get a jump cut, we get a smash cut here to the Land of Marvelous Dreams. Yeah, and this is a cheesy children's comic book kind of page. It even has numbered panels to avoid confusion. Hellblazer could use those. (laughs) Hold my hand, Jed, and we will fly. Oh, oh, we are flying. (laughs) Jed here is in the company of an older man and woman wearing matching bright yellow and red outfits. Yeah, and is this the same as the uh, Jack Kirby Sandman costume? Yeah, that's right. This is the Jack Kirby Sandman costume. The man has a a large hourglass symbol on his chest. Now, this is not Jack Kirby's Sandman. This is Hector Hall, his successor. Right. Hector Hall was created by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. He had his first appearance in All-Star Squadron number 25 in 1983, and he replaced Garrett Sanford as Guardian of the Dream Dimension in Infinity, Inc. number 50 in 1988. In any case, they have sort of cheesy, reassuring adventures that take on a slight nightmarish tone as the boy is warned not to let go or he'll fall and then a large bird forces him to let go and he screams as he falls and finds himself on the floor of a dirty dark basement with someone yelling at him shut up you little bastard or i'll really give you something to scream about yeah and we see that he has no choice but to pee in the corner the sort of grittiness of this page is contrasted really well with the, with the dreamland, the you know, non-threatening cheesiness of the adventure comic that he's in when he's dreaming. Right, and Jed gets away from his terrible reality by going back to sleep and dreaming once again of his wild adventures with the Sandman. Yeah, now we talked in our discussion of issue number eight, The Sound of Her Wings about how there are just certain tropes that you go to when you're trying to be, like, hardcore. Mm -hmm. The death of the baby in issue eight struck me that way. And I, I think that child abuse is maybe another one of those sort of easy tropes. You know, it's a really easy way to evoke both pathos and outrage in the reader. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, what we see here is pretty awful, but it certainly didn't strike me as the most extreme element of this comic, given that there's also a serial murderer of teenage boy prostitutes. <laughs> well, no, sure. I, I just... Well, yeah, I wanted to mention it, that, like, the thought did occur to me that, that child abuse is pretty, pretty easy, dramatic ground. Not, mm-hmm. not easy for the reader, but an easy way to evoke an emotional response. But in this yeah, and case, there's definitely some some rough moments in this comic. Yeah, but in this case, I think it works a little better just because of the effectiveness of the juxtaposition between Jed's dream life and his real life. Yeah, and, and as we'll find out in a minute, it is actually sort of significant to the story being told that his reality is something that he tries to escape. So after urinating in the corner. He curls up on the dirt floor and escapes back to his dream world where Brute and Glob are given a passing mention by this dream Sandman. And those scamps Brute and Glob must go back to their cells. Yeah, they were mentioned very briefly last issue as two of the major arcana who are missing from the Dreaming, so that's a significant hint. Yeah. So on the next page, we pick up with Rose writing a letter to her mother. Yeah, and she's describing her strange housemates, who we already kind of introduced. She says she has the feeling that she's strayed into a remake of The Adams Family. She describes Ken and Barbie as terrifyingly, appallingly normal, which struck me as a very neo Gaiman phrase, and adds that they're the Stepford Yuppies. <laughs> yeah. Do we know what part of the United States she's from? Rose, she's from New Jersey. Okay, she told Al that. We find out that Chantal and Zelda have 24,000 spiders, and that Zelda never speaks. Rose doesn't know if they're mother and daughter, sisters, lovers, what their relationship is. Yeah, and we hear a little bit of news about Gilbert, which is that Rose has never met him, only heard his voice, and he was asking for a six-foot pencil so he could write on the ceiling. Right, at least Hal is normal, Rose writes, just as Hal bursts in wearing pearls and a slinky black dress, bitching about the director giving an extra number to that slut Mitzi. After Dolly disappears, Rose types, well, relatively normal anyway. Anyway, Rose has a cure post around the wall. Boys don't cry. And before switching to her findings in the investigation, she also mentions this big old raven that's living on her window ledge. As she discusses her investigations, she says that Jed seemingly used to live with her father. Why couldn't anyone have let us know that he died? I mean, I would have liked the option to refuse to go to his funeral. Then Jed went to live with their grandfather, Ezra Paulson, at his lighthouse. But it seems like just after he arrived, Ezra drowned about four years ago, and there's no sign of what happened to Jed. That's all I've got so far. I'll keep looking. All my love to both of you. And she signs both her name, Rose, and a drawing of a rose as her signature. And speaking of missives, the raven flies into the dreaming and perches on the hand of Morpheus. That bird is a spy. His name, we find out, is Matthew, and Morpheus ordered him to spy on Rose because, as the vortex, she will inevitably draw the stray dreams to her. Yeah, and that made me wonder... If Jed is a dream vortex too, because he seems to be attracting stray dreams, we know that Brute and Glob are in his dreams, not Rose's. Yes, although she's searching for Jed, and Morpheus knows that nothing connected with the vortex can be a coincidence, so he asks Matthew to provide him with a picture of Jed. Morpheus, incidentally, is busily creating a new nightmare, A row of people with holes for faces through which bloody meat can be seen. So this is the first time we have seen Matthew as a raven, but it's not actually his first appearance. He is Matthew Cable, a Swamp Thing supporting character. He first appeared in Swamp Thing Volume 1, Number 1, created by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. Oh, okay. So Matthew is the Matt, who we're going to see next week in our coverage of Swamp Thing. That's right. He is Swamp Thing's wife, Abby Holland's ex-husband. All right. Crazy coincidences. So they're sort of building a vertigo universe here. The burger-verse? Yeah. So, on the next page, Rose has just enjoyed the drag review and decides to take a shortcut back to the house through an alley. And that turns out not to have been the best idea, as she walks right into three guys who are apparently intent on robbery and rape. Then, a guy who's incognito, meaning that he's wearing a fedora and trench coat, (laughs) beats them up with uh, his cane. I guess it's a good thing he didn't run into white spy. (laughs) This is, to me, very reminiscent of the the scene where V saves Evie at the beginning of V for Vendetta, but it's very old-fashioned swashbuckler movie as well as he easily dispatches these three thugs with his cane. Yeah, I like we get trip here as a sound effect (laughs) and then whack in the next panel. So I guess he tripped a guy and whacked a guy. Yeah, so they're all on the ground now and this fellow asks, would you like to kick them, Miss? uh?" Rose replies, "Mm, no, no thank you. These are nice shoes. She tells him her name and he says, Ah, the downstairs front lodger. Which means he must be Gilbert, the weird uh, man upstairs. <laughs> I'm afraid I must. Gilbert and- takes his hat off, and we see his face for the first time. And he is the spinning image of Gilbert Keith G.K. Chesterton. Indeed. He's got messy hair and a mustache and glasses that are attached by a chain. She asks if Gilbert is his first name or his last, and he replies, Indubitably. She says that she went to see Dolly's show, and Gilbert confesses that he's never had the pleasure. It's fun in a camp sort of way. They all sing Hello Dolly when he first comes on stage. You know, it seemed like most of those guys had better legs than I do. And the next page finds us back in Jed's dream world, where Brut and Glob are in a little cage, and there's another sort of glass cage that sort of resembles dream's cell from the first issue, which is full of verbal gerbils. Jed immediately and inadvisedly pushes the button to open the glass ball, and the gerbils get out and multiply explosively. Yeah, it doesn't open the glass ball so much as it just teleports them from inside to outside. Yeah. But yeah, there's a big pile of gerbils, and Sandman and his wife are alarmed and then, in reality, the rat bites Jed on the face. Yeah, he tries to wrestle the rat off and it bites his hand as well, and he manages to throw it away and sits there, crying helplessly. We see that his, his horrific reality infects his dream logic. Yeah. On the next page, we're back with Rose, and this is a cool scene. Hal is basically teaching Rose his drag routine. Yeah, and she is yelling because Matthew the Raven has just taken off with her picture of Jay. And at that point, Gilbert shows up saying that she has a phone call. Hal asks if he doesn't know anything about the phone call. And Gilbert at first appears offended at the implication that he would attempt to gather intelligence on another tenant and then quickly shares the intelligence he has gathered. The call is from the P.I.'s rose hired to find Jed, and they have been successful. And along the bottom of this page, Matthew flies away with the photo, until the next page finds him delivering it into the hands of Morpheus. Yeah, now upon seeing the picture, Morpheus quickly ascertains that Jed is nowhere in the dreaming. He's been completely disconnected, and one of the stray arcana must be to blame. Right, one of the fugitive dreams must be shielding him from Morpheus's ability to locate him. I wonder, fleetingly, which of them could be responsible. Fiddler's Green, Bruton Glob, the Corinthian. And speak of the Devil, on the next page the Corinthian is in another motel room. He looks like he's playing with some eyeballs that he took off his latest victims. Eyeballs must be a novelty to him, seeing as he doesn't have any of his own. Okay, so this is fantastically creepy. He's dialing a phone with bloody fingers, and he starts talking to the person on the other end. And as he continues talking without a break, we hear... Shump, shrump, shrump. He's eating the eyeballs, but not with the mouth he uses to speak. Oh, that's gross. And at the same time, he is making some kind of reservations to a psycho convention. Right, he's talking to this Nimrod about a gathering of people who share our specialized interests. The gathering, it turns out, is this weekend in Georgia, and Nimrod asks if he knows the place to which the Corinthian replies, I know America like the back of my hand. I'm part of the American dream. Yeah, and as he says to put his name down as the Corinthian, it becomes clear that Nimrod and he have both heard of each other's work. Again, adding to the evidence that this is Some kind of psycho convention that they're going to. Right. And so the Corinthian puts on his sunglasses and leaves the motel room, leaving behind two dead eyeless boys. What an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) What an eyeball hole. So on the next page, Rose is saying goodbye to Hal as she leaves to go chase a lead. Gilbert invites himself along, and Rose quickly and firmly refuses his company. So, of course, the next thing you know, they're driving there together. (laughs) Right, he insists on going along to protect her, and shows off that he has both a sword cane and an ancient but serviceable revolver. And yeah, they are driving along. They're headed for a farm in Georgia, where Jed, it turns out, lives with their father's cousin Clarice and her husband Barnaby. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. We also know that the Psycho Convention is in Georgia, so everybody's kind of converging here. The P.I.s have found them through the state records. Clarice and Barnaby are getting $800 a month from the state to take care of Jed. She thinks that means they must be taking good care of him, but we see that's not true. Her thinking that is juxtaposed with Jed tied to a pipe in the basement. As Jed dreams of the Sandman using his whistle to stop the evil Dr. Lobster. At that moment, Morpheus detects Jed. Fruit and glob have severed his mind from the true dreaming they are living in his mind attempting to create their own dreaming within and as he says this morpheus readies himself for war putting on his cloak and helmet yeah along with a sweet pair of gloves i think it's interesting how angry he is here at what they're doing but again we can infer that it's not on jed's behalf right it's because of the impudence of setting up their own dreaming and Breaking the natural order of things. They know the law, my law, and they have wantonly defined it. Did they think they could hide from me? I do not know what game they are playing, but I know this. I am angry, Lucian, and it's my move. So, Sandman number 12, Playing House. And this one is not drawn by Mike Dringenberg. The inks are still Malcolm Jones. But the pencils in this issue are by Chris Piccolo from Generation X. Oh, yeah, Yeah, Chris Piccolo is the co-creator of Generation X, the X-Men spin-off comic. Yeah, um, he's got a very distinctive sort of almost manga-inspired style, but it's not on display here. No, no, he's, he's doing much more an imitation of the same style we've been seeing. But yeah, he co-created Generation X with Scott Lobdell and drew... I, I think most of the run of it, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. At least the first 30 issues or so. Yeah, definitely some of his work you would see if you were reading 90s X-Men. And the cover is Dave McKeon once again, and this is kind of an interesting one. There's sort of a large black eye lying on a pile of broken glass with dozens of pins pulling it down, perhaps indicating Morpheus's search leading him into Jed's head. Yeah, it also sort of evokes the Corinthian. Right, yeah, who has teeth in his eyes. And there's also a dismembered doll here with an animal skull for a head. Right. We open this issue on a perspective that we've only barely glimpsed so far in this story. Hippolyta Lyta Hall, the white-haired and very pregnant wife of Hector Hall. And she is also a retired superhero. Lyta is thinking about her marital woes. Her husband, Hector, is almost entirely consumed with his work, and they no longer make love. Although, she wouldn't welcome his advances even if he made them. So she is walking to the control room because there's an alarm going off throughout the Dream Dome. And the alarm is due to an approaching creature that Glob rather hastily explains is, The Nightmare Monster. It's a terrible creature from the, uh, (laughs) Under-ID. Yeah, Now, if I'm not mistaken, the Nightmare Monster is an actual villain from Jack Kirby-era Sandman, right? That's true. Yeah, Garrett Sanford fought the Nightmare Monster, but in this case, it's not the Nightmare Monster. No, they're actually tricking him into fighting Morpheus, who is on his way. Now, before Hector hurries off to fight the Nightmare Monster, Lyda asks how long they've been there. It's been a couple of years, right? and she was six months pregnant when they arrived, and she's still carrying the baby. It seems to occur to Hector for the very first time that this is weird, and he promises to ask Brudenglob Glob about it when he gets back. Yeah, he kind of passes off her concerns with a silly explanation about how the stork must not be able to find the Dream Dome. Right, Hector has sort of a remarkably simple thought process here. He doesn't notice that his job and his accomplishments are silly, he takes Lighta's complaint very casually, and he seems to think the stork doesn't know how to get to the Dream Dome is a serious answer. Yeah, and what we're seeing here is that this Sandman's thought process is entirely limited by the capabilities of Jed's mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we also see here that he has an outing with Jed scheduled, indicating that he and Lyta are actually present for and aware of their appearances in Jed's dreams. Right. So this is also kind of a a very brusque satire of golden age comics. Yeah, that's true. On the next page, Lyta thinks about the fact that his job is to give all the children of the world wonderful dreams, and they see Jed all the time, but no other children. Still, She doesn't think about anything much anymore. Sometimes, she almost wonders why. And at the bottom of this page, and throughout the next one, we are treated to... Barnaby being a world-class asshole. So he's got Jed upstairs in the house, got him by the hair, and is telling him that a social services inspector is coming, so he's temporarily to pretend that their son's room is his. He punches Jed in the stomach and threatens worse if he tells the welfare inspector the truth. Yeah, and this page, I think, for the first time, confirms that Jed's captors are the same Clarice and Barnaby, Rose's father's cousin right, and her husband, who she's headed for. Yeah, so we learn that they get $800 a month from the state for Jed, which Rose had found out, but also that he tried to run away three years ago, and that is apparently their reason for locking him in the basement. They know it's important to keep Jed safe. They just couldn't tell you why. It's unclear here whether Brute and Glob are actually involved in Jed's abuse. It seems like they need somebody who needs to retreat from reality. And they've influenced Clarice and Barnaby to know that they need to keep Jed at all costs. Oh, is that what it is? I just interpreted that line to mean that... They protect him as a source of money, but they don't understand why the government feels that it has an interest in protecting children, because they're just awful people. Yeah, that's a fair read. Back in the Dream Dome, Brute and Glov are surreptitiously discussing what's happening. Morpheus is coming for them, and so far the barriers are keeping him out. He can't force his way in without killing Jed, which is against the rules. I'm beginning to think we should have stuck with the last one. Paul's even dumber than Sanford was. It takes some doing, but he is. We find Morpheus traveling through the dreaming, admiring the traps and pitfalls that Bruton have put in his path. They've done surprisingly well. Still, he says, my admiration does not lessen my anger. Yeah, I like that line, too. I actually wrote it down. Same, the same one you just read. And this page, too, has very cool and distinctive art, unlike what we're seeing in the rest of the comic. As Morpheus is this kind of amorphous mass blasting through space with his helmet. Yeah, he dodging octopus tentacles and stuff. Talking about all the traps and pitfalls. We find Lyta again, thinking about her history with Hector. How they were superheroes together. What she calls the costume stuff. Yeah, and how his dreams always came first. There were the nightmare times when she thought Hector was dead. Well, to be fair... He was dead, and she was pregnant with his child. But Bruton Glob had caught his soul in the dream dome, made him the Sandman, the protector of dreams. After the wedding, she came to live in this house, and she was very happy. They were all so very, very happy." I like the line at the top of this page too, living in a dream house with a dream husband. Pector calls in to say that he's off to fight the monster, and Brute and Glob talk about trying to slip away and start over somewhere else, knowing that Hector has no chance in fighting Morpheus. We came so damn close. Just a few more years. It would have worked. No. No, it would never have worked, but it was fun to try. So for the first time in this issue, we find Rose in Dodge County, Georgia, where her car broke down. Yeah, she and Gilbert Puffet a mile and a half that feels like 15. Oh, I love this line. <laughs> she says, what was that then? 10 miles? 15? Perhaps a mile and a half, Miss Walker. But you're no fun, Gilbert. <laughs> and they approach the hotel, and it is hosting a serial convention. Yeah, this old man tells them that he's all booked up due to the convention. But some guests won't arrive until tomorrow morning, and Rose promises to be out first thing. So although he really shouldn't, he gives them two rooms. Yeah, and in the last panel we see the guest list, and it confirms our suspicions that this serial convention is actually the Psycho Convention. We see some of the names on this list, including the Corinthian, two different the devils, and someone called the Family Man. Meanwhile, it's the Corinthian's turn, apparently, to make his way through a dark alley. And do you suppose that these are the same muggers as before? (laughs) <laughs> well, that can't be, because one, muggers, of them was, one of them was bald. Those muggers were in Florida, and these... Anyway, the Florida muggers were very, like, 1980s English punk, despite being in Florida. <laughs> I guess Neil Gaiman has got to write the punks he knows. Yeah. There's a great line in Mort by Terry Pratchett describing the thugs who set upon Mort when he's just gotten his death powers as, like, the kind of people who only exist in a story like this. <laughs> Well, in any case, these muggers are pretending to be prostitutes, just to confirm that the Corinthian has money. They pop switchblades and try to rob him. He disarms one, but the guy reaches for his eyes. Which is a bad move. He recoils with his fingers bitten off. Because the Corinthian has chompers in there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What, John? He's got choppers in there. (laughs) He does. He bit off my fingers with his eyes. And he takes one of their knives and reaches for their eyes. Mmm, nice knife. Easy action. Then we find Hector going up against the massive, unstoppable presence of Morpheus, who immediately recognizes him as Little Ghost, Little Ghost, get out of my way. Jed is up against the basement door, crying, There's something happening. There's something happening in my head, begging to be let out as the battle continues. Lyta sort of wonders if something's going on. She finds herself wandering alone through the dream dome, unable to find Brute, Glob, or her husband. And Brute and Glob are debating where to flee. Hell? No. Heaven? Don't make me laugh. They then come to the idea of Killing Barnaby and Clarice and hiding in their skins. But even that wouldn't work. Morpheus would find them. Yeah, they, they quickly conclude that he would find them there almost immediately. So the Sandman versus Sandman battle continues. Hector is trying various weapons on Morpheus, which are comically ineffectual. A whistle, a cartridge of dream sand. Yeah, Neil Gaiman is making fun of the Jack Kirby Sandman pretty hard here. <laughs> yeah. Hector gets Morpheus' attention to the point that Morpheus asks who he is, and Hector identifies himself, I am the Sandman, guardian of the dreams of men, protector against wicked nightmares, lord of the dream dome, and friend of children everywhere. (laughs) Which Morpheus responds with the scariest fucking laugh you've ever heard in your life. You think so? Or read on a page, (laughs) as the case may be. See, I thought this was very funny, as Morpheus has this uncontrollable laugh that builds up over five panels until he loses it. Oh, humanity, I love you. You never cease to amaze me. I thought this was a really effective change in tone, as Morpheus' is scary bearing down on Bruton and Glob and his fight with Hector dissolve into just him uncontrollably laughing. And the art does a good job of selling his posture, too, as he just loses control of himself, even though he's a god. (laughs) Right. So Morpheus puts an end to the dream. Barnaby hears a noise in the basement, and as he goes to investigate, the basement door is blown away by a massive blast and he is disintegrated. Yeah! (laughs) Good riddance to bad rubbish. (laughs) Ha! Unclear at this point whether Clarice is also killed. We never see her again. Good to know. She was an unpleasant lady. So now we've got Morpheus, Hector, Lyta, Brute, and Glob standing in the basement, and unnoticed at the top of the stairs is Jed. Brute, Glob, hello. I presume that this peculiar charade had some kind of purpose, and Brute has a pretty eloquent response here. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Glob explains how they weren't sure he'd be coming back, so they decided to start their own dreaming severed Jed's mind from the dreaming, got a mortal to make a Sandman. Their first try, Garrett Sanford, killed himself, so they tried again with someone who was already dead, Hector Hall. Yep, and basically in the course of this page, they cement a pretty epic retcon of the entire first volume of Sandman. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing was never in the real dream dimension. It was all silliness. Sorry, Jack Kirby. Morpheus... Pronounces sentence. I will clean up the mess you have created. As for you two, I doubt that either of you will enjoy the next few thousand years very much. Yeah, he banishes Brut and Glob, and then turns his attention to Hector Hall. It is unseemly for the dead to walk the earth. Hector Hall. He banishes Hector to his appointed place, and Hector barely has time to shout. I love you to Lyta as it disappears. Damn, man, that's pretty cold. Yeah, and it only gets more harsh on the next page. Lyta is railing against him in her grief, and his only response is, Oh yeah, you're gonna have a baby, and that baby belongs to me. Yeah. Selfish, too. But she accuses him of killing Hector, and he replies that he was already dead, and that she should count herself lucky for having had two years with him after he died. She asks what he's going to do. He says, nothing. Nothing? You killed Hector. You destroyed our home. You've ruined my life. You call that nothing? Exactly. Nothing. You are free to go. Build yourself a new life, Hippolyta Hall. Oh, I almost forgot. The child, the child you have carried so long in dreams. That child is mine. Take good care of it. One day I will come for it. You take my child over my dead body, you spooky bastard. Over my dead body. Yeah, Morpheus teleports away to a prior engagement, leaving Lyda seeming defeated on the floor of the basement, but she's not giving up yet. Yeah, I can't say I blame her. I'm really rooting for her in this one. (laughs) Well, like I said, it's a matter of perspective. Some dream fucker gonna come along and take her kid? Out in the rain, Jed is fleeing the scene and a driver spots him and slows to let him into the car. And yeah, it's the Corinthian. Jed asks why he's wearing dark sunglasses at night, and if he can see okay, and the Corinthian replies, Sure, I can see, Jed. I can see everything. I can see just fine. (sighs) Spooky scary! Yeah, so a lot of stuff happening there, tying into some things from way back. Also setting up some stuff that's probably going to be pretty important. The story is not over, although Morpheus has decided to walk out in the middle. <laughs> yeah, and we are told that the next issue of Sandman will fill us in on the nature of his prior engagement. So I know we've been talking for a long time, but what did you think of that arc? I thought it was good. It was a really well-constructed story. It had a lot of moving parts, but they were all compelling and they all made a lot of sense. I found the Rose stuff particularly good. She's a really interesting new character, and he's established a personality and a set of motivations for her really well. Like I said, the Jed stuff, child abuse is kind of melodramatic, but what with the Dream Dome and the Sandman and all that stuff works out pretty well. Do you think the subject was treated with an adequate respect, given that it's a a real-life horror? Well, this is an adult comic, so, like, what we expect to see is horrors that are grounded, you know, if not in our our own reality, at least in the sort of things that we're likely to see on the news. hmm You know, the sort of darkness that we know exists in the real world. So, I guess I do feel that it was handled respectfully enough in that the gravity of it was not squandered or or mocked right right insofar as brute and glob for their hand in this are played as amusing comic figures and barnaby and clarice are absolutely not yeah that's true another part of this story is a corinthian lurking in the background and of course gilbert mostly just set up at this point Yeah, but the few pages that we've had with the Corinthian have established him really well as both, you know, scary and disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And really effectively nightmarish in a distinct way. Yeah, yeah. And there's an interesting device here with Rose as the Dream Vortex, explaining away any coincidences that leak into the stories, as well the Dream Vortex causes the dreams to array around her. Yeah, that's right. That lets you get away with it a lot. It's interesting too, I think, to see Morpheus on the job. This is almost one of the very few arcs where we just see him going about performing his duties and what kind of thing he actually has to do as one of the Endless. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. and We get a lot of his haughty manner as he doesn't like anybody interfering with his job. I think that the events of these issues are not as personal to him as most of what we've seen in this title so far. But that works, because we have Rose and Jed to care about instead. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Also did a good job with Lyta, expressing her point of view and the, the shit that she has been through that brings her to this point, and, and why her relationship with Dream is not going to be a good one. As you said, you're kind of siding with her. Yeah, exactly. This is less personally important to him than the events of the storyline so far, and his apathy can definitely make him antagonistic to the interests of the readers. Right. But yeah, I I'm really enjoying this story arc and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes next. So on the next Sandman we'll find out about the prior engagement, but join us next time on guys when John Constantine experiences some kind of French adoration. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's Swamp Thing issues 76 and 77 and Hellblazer number 10 in our next episode. See you next time. Hey, if you like our show, why don't you check out vertiguys.blueberry.com. that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, where we've got plenty more episodes, plus show notes and links for every episode. You can also find us on Twitter at at or on Gmail, vertiguise at gmail.com. And by the way, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.